it is I, Captain Kitty. And yes, I've taken a little bit of an extended break here with my co-producers Binky and Snuggles to basically prepare for season two. We'll be relaunching on Halloween. That's in a couple weeks. So in the lead up to my release, I thought it'd be nice to share with you a podcast that I listen to, Nuances. What I love about this podcast is how the host, Lazu Lee, interviews folks across the Asian diaspora about topics like identity, the music industry, politics, mental health, other stuff like that. Yours truly was the season finale guest for Nuances, so that's the episode you'll be listening to. And then in a few weeks, we'll be dropping season two, episode one. Alrighty, here's Nuances with Lazu Lee featuring me. Welcome to another episode of the Nuances Podcast, where we go beyond first impressions with the Asian diaspora and explore our often complicated relationships with our cultures and how they affect everything from our career choices to our views on anti-racism, disability justice, religion, feminism, LGBTQ rights, and more. I'm your host, Lazu, a new American who grew up in the only place the dodo bird ever lived, Mauritius. For today's interview, we have the host of the very entertaining podcast called Six Degrees of Cats, Since ancient times, they have sailed the seven seas, left their mark on art, culture, religion, and imprinted themselves into our very DNA. It's time to discuss our close relatives. Cats! Yes, friends, you heard me right. Cats. Paka. Pusa. Koyangi. Gorbe. Neko. Gato. Kiri. Why were cats adjacent to gods in ancient Egypt, but considered Satan's familiar by Europe's Middle Ages? Why do serial killers and despots hate cats? Did Sir Isaac Newton really create the cat door? Or did he steal this idea from a peasant and claim the patent for himself like a dirty capitalist? Good questions. Find out on Six Degrees of Cats. A bi-monthly podcast in which I... Amanda B. will investigate all the curious patterns and connections between human and feline kind from a perspective you've never considered. And I mean, if we can't even communicate with the pets living in our homes, how are we ever going to communicate with other life forms? But when I came in and applied for the job, they were just blown away that a a black man was liking cats like that. No disrespect, we just never seen a black man like, you know, somebody that looked like you handle cats like this. But when the this instrument brought to the mainland of Japan, it was covered with cat skin, as history says. <laughs> I am pretty sure that you'll never look at cats the same after listening to Six Degrees of Cats. Subscribe now. Before we get into our conversation, here are a few terms that come up that you may or may not know. The Rust Belt is a region in the United States that experienced industrial decline starting from the 1950s. Tabula rasa means a blank slate. Cisgendered means a person whose identity corresponds with the sex registered for them at birth, which means they're not transgender. And trauma-informed is kind of a buzzword, but it simply means that this person has had education, training, and understanding of the neurobiological impacts of trauma on the body and on somebody's behavior. 
So in this episode, we do talk about Amanda's work in the gender-based violence prevention space. We don't go into any graphic details or anything, but we do explain what that is and how to look out for it. So if that is a difficult subject that you do not want to be listening to, feel free to skip this episode and I will see you next season. I can't believe it is the final episode of this season. This went by so fast. I'm so excited for you to hear what's coming next. Our guest today is Amanda B. Amanda is the executive producer and host of Six Degrees of Cats, a cat-themed culture, history, and occasionally science podcast that investigates the surprising intersections between human and feline kind. She has worked internationally in the fields of clinical research, public health, social impact, and tech, and is a trained advocate for violence survivors and youth mental health. As a musician, Amanda composes and plays lead guitar in the New York-based rock band Leathered, and has has supported major artists on live broadcasts and stages in the US and Europe. Amanda also freelances as a producer of live and virtual professional development programming for clients such as the Podcast Academy. Amanda, thank you so much for doing this. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lajo. I'm so happy to be here. I love your <laughs> show and I appreciate what you're doing for the entire community across the Asian diaspora. Thank you. We have a lot to talk about, so let's start from the beginning. <laughs> Do you want to share a bit about your story? Oh, there's so many stories. Everybody contains multitudes. I'm East Asian. My ethnic background is Korean, and I'm a transracial, transnational adoptee. I use those two words intentionally because there are actually non-transnational adoptees who are Korean adopted from Korean biological families into homes in the same nation, for example. And I hadn't realized that distinction until I read a couple books by adoptees of that experience. I was raised in the Midwest of North America, although the Rust Belt apparently is the better distinction. I studied psychology after a brief foray into astrophysics at the University of Michigan. I have always been very passionate about the world and human connections, exploring connections. So my podcast, Six Degrees of Cats, connects my affinity for and love of one specific animal, the household cat. I think the patterns across history and cultures that I've noticed connect us all together in really surprising, unexplored, very unique and quirky ways. I get paid to do educational programming, community kind of stuff. And certainly I try to channel everything I do in ways that help uplift voices that are underrepresented, under-celebrated and under-resourced. So that's me in a nutshell. Go by Amanda and I love cats. <laughs> so you want to talk a bit about your story as a transracial, transnational Korean adoptee. What was that like for you growing up? Ooh. It's interesting to phrase that question because it's all I've ever known. So I'm aware of the common norm, and I suppose I should answer that with respect to the standard. So I was raised in a nuclear household, as many transracial, transnational adoptees of the East Asian experience have been, primarily because it's a privilege to be able to adopt children internationally. My cohort at the time was during the 80s, which was the peak when we started seeing almost a cottage industry or an international flow of children from various international locations that had been impacted by conflict that had arrangements with local governments to those newly adopted countries. So I, like many transracial, transnational East Asian adoptees, I'm going to call them adoptees for short because that's going to be a long mouthful. 
I was adopted into a white Judeo-Christian leaning two-parent household, specifically Protestant in my family's case. They were straight, cisgendered, and two people working full-time. I have a younger brother who is biologically related to my parents. One of the demarcations of my experience, which is shared with other transracial, transnational adoptees, is that I was one of very few people who shared my ethnic background in my immediate community. I'm not going to name the town, but I will say, if you've seen the film Napoleon Dynamite, it gives you a sense of what the population looked like and also the socioeconomic distribution based on what I saw. Further, if you mix it in with a little of the grit from uh, Welcome to the Dollhouse, like the kids that Don Wiener was around and freaks and geeks a little bit, you'll get a sense of what Rust Belt adolescence as a non-white person may have looked and felt like. So did you have any connection to Korean culture at all growing up? I did. This was a really wonderful thing my parents were able to give. The most immediately proximate large city had a large concentration of kids who were adopted. That adoption agency, Holt International, which is a Christian organization started by Christian missionaries, they would produce a thing called culture camp, which was a week where families were invited into a day camp. You could choose. You did not have to go to the camp that was specific to your ancestral culture, which I thought was kind of neat. We would have guests from the actual culture. What's interesting, too, is that the major city proximate to where I was raised had a small community of immigrants from South Korea. Incidentally, I also went to a church that had Korean Americans there. And so I did have some connection and exposure a little bit. Certainly, of course, the Asian kid go to the Korean restaurant, which is usually staffed by non-Korean people adapting food. But certainly I was taken to some of the more actual like immigrant run or Korean run restaurants and had my share of kimchi. So, you know, as you mentioned, that's your normal. For people like me, um, not so much. I have a very different experience from you. So I wonder if there are any particular questions or comments that people might make that seem innocuous to us non-adoptees, but would grate you a little bit as an adoptee. Oh, I love that question. Also, I love your background. I think that one thing we really need to name here, and you do a great job in your podcast, is there is no monolith. Like we are all clustered around these really trivial categorizations that really they were forced upon us. A lot of those questions are wrapped into the overarching problem, which is how misunderstood and just no air is given to the East Asian American experience in general. There isn't specificity given. We're defined by what we are not. There's an adjacency to whiteness, which seems intrinsic to Asianness, which I bristle at that. That's a positionality that is not an identity. And I don't like being called white adjacent. Whiteness has nothing to do with who I am. It just shows me where I can and can't go. And my behaviors don't define entirely who I am. But I think the primary questions misunderstands the construct of family. I took one of the most impactful courses at University of Michigan, which was the biggest turning point. And this is relevant to the here and now because University of Michigan was a hotbed of affirmative action at the time that I went to college. We were all required to graduate with, I'd say, five to eight courses that had been co-coded as race and ethnicity. And this was to reinforce the school's belief at that time that it was critical if you were coming out of that institution to literally have exposure and understanding and an awareness of other lived experiences with respect to race and ethnicity and culture. 
So I took this course called the History of the Family of the United States only because it was like a five credit media course that I could get out of the way. I entered Michigan with absolutely no interest, passion, or in particular nuance into identity. I don't think anybody was equipped with those tools at the time. I had no understanding of how politics inform the way that we have been forced and defined and how that reverberates and is perpetuated. We assume that the way things are natural or just the way that they happen. And in fact, not at all. Those are all because of very specific political and socioeconomic interventions. So through that, I came to understand myself as an East Asian person. I understood how Asian male masculinity has been directly impacted by laws that prevented East Asian men, specifically Chinese. There weren't too many others, although fun fact, the first Asian to put a boat on North American shores was Filipino. Yeah which is an interesting fun fact, right? Mm-hmm. Love that stuff. History's so cool. Why do they want to hide it? But let me come back to what I was saying. So that legislation led to what a lot of East Asian men, like my husband, experience. And it has nothing to do with any inborn traits. We are socialized and trained and reinforced by every single message we receive through all sensory perception receivers that we use to inform our experiences. That's what shapes your experience. So coming back to the family question and the questions about East Asian adoption, there's assumptions that are made about nurture versus nature. You know, I had a great aunt, sweet lady, didn't get out a lot. She's a product of her times. I'm okay saying that doesn't excuse anybody, but she's passed away. And I don't like punishing people for their past selves when they're not even here. But she said, will she ever learn to speak English about an eight month old (laughs) infant who was being brought to North America and to be raised by my parents? Now, it seems absurd right now, but at the time, we certainly didn't have psycholinguistics. Steven Pinker was still doing groundbreaking research about how babies learn language and how the brain is not a tabula rasa, but in fact is a living, breathing organism that receives information and adapts to its environment and is primed to learn language, which is just a cool thing to know. Now we're in a space where understanding identity and relationally is the key. Asian Americans are having a hard time co-locating themselves. There's a difference between I feel like I'm part of this community versus I am seen as part of this community by person X, Y, or Z. I don't feel like I am part of the East Asian community when it comes to conversations about second generation experiences, the immigrant experience. Technically speaking, I am an immigrant. I don't have the same experience as, say, working class, blue collar, Hmong folks in Texas. You know, that's a dramatically different lived experience. I have more in common with the Rockefellers. Maybe not, but you know what I'm saying? (laughs) It's like a big, there's a wide gulf. And so I think a lot of the questions I get stem from that assumption, A, that I just fall into that cluster and then that natural family unit is mine. So it's really just naive questions about nurture versus nature and also belongingness. It's such a wide spectrum of questions I get that land a little weird or I'm not sure how to answer. Nobody's a bad guy, but it's hard. Yeah. Are there specific questions that you get that you would prefer that they were rephrased in a different way? Sure. This one's not unique to being adopted, but certainly like, where are you from? (laughs) Or what's your nationality? It's like the definition of nationality is what's on your passport. So that would be American. (laughs) Yeah. I think questions that have an underlying expectation or assumption that I had a certain experience. Were you close with your parents? Would you ask that of anybody? What kind of answer are you expecting to get? I think people don't really ask a question understanding deeply what they mean. So maybe just phrasing, you know, where did you grow up is an interesting question that might get the answer that people are trying to get at when they ask those questions of other people. Not asking about like your child home at first, like that 
that just seems like basic decorum. Yeah. Where are you from? Are those your real parents? Do you feel connected to them even though they're not your real parents? I don't think people really say it as much, but yeah, of course, those are really annoying questions. Yeah. The questions that make assumptions that somehow your relationship to your parents should be different because you're adopted. Exactly. Exactly. Since joining TikTok, I've heard a lot of very strong opinions about transracial adoption. I've seen a lot of people who are very strongly against it and also people who are very strongly for it, both sides. What's your personal opinion about it? What are the pros and cons that you feel strongly about? Sure. I'm coming from a perspective that's very research informed because when I was an undergrad in Michigan and I changed my major, I actually was a research assistant on a project that analyzed family dynamics in transracial adopted families. So that was actually an interesting question that I got even then. When you are bringing anything into your home that is living, sentient, you are adapting your environment and yourself to its needs. Okay, so plants, cats, humans. Okay, I am equating them all because we have to start somewhere. You are not absorbing it. You are equally becoming part of that community. All right. Or you should conceptualize it that way. When you come from that mindset, I think you're going to avoid the pitfalls of the, I'm erasing this child's culture, assuming and centralizing, forgetting that I am in such a position of power that I can't acknowledge their experience. I really dislike the word empathy. That's a really big hot take. I think empathy and sympathy are the same side of a coin that is the early pre-step in trying to make a decision on what you're going to do with the information you have. Empathy just means I'm going to see, do I have a lived experience that can help me connect to these feelings? Instead of driving towards compassion, which should be the ultimate outcome, it makes people think, oh, I would do this if I was them terrible instinct that serves nobody. Do not lean on empathy to guide your feelings. Use humility. So part of that humility as well is if you're an adoptive parent or you're becoming friends with somebody in a community you don't know, if you really care, you're going to try to understand you're an interloper in their culture. They are a piece of that community that you're bringing. So this is sensitive because we don't want people being culture vultures or hovering or interlocuting into community spaces they're not invited into. But I would encourage folks to do a lot of education, embrace and hold on to their community's priorities as your own because they have become your own concerns. You know, if I were to adopt a child from another community, Indigenous, Black, Latine, already I care. Those are important conversations to me and inform how I have a relationship. But now if I have a member of their community in my care and in my viewpoint, they must be my priority. It's not either or. It has to be part of the process. So that's my personal opinion. I think the pros and cons stem from accepting that responsibility, acknowledging it, recognizing it, knowing what to do with it, or rejecting it. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. Now, switching gears a little bit, you are a multi-talented woman. You have done so many things. Says the multi-talented woman doing tons of things. Talk a little bit about your career so far and how your various interests have gotten you where you are now. As I mentioned, community, connection, curiosity, those are the through lines of what spaces I feel welcomed into and what spaces I'm drawn to, which sometimes aren't the same. <laughs> I think creativity as well as another. I started my journey always being interested in the arts. 
I loved visual arts as a kid. I think my environment forced me to be very introverted and inner seeking and not withdrawn, but interior. So I was really into like painting and I really love film. I can't remember the shift when I decided I want to play guitar. I think it was because I took piano lessons. They were really structured. I wasn't actually a great student. The kindergarten friend of mine took classical guitar very seriously and told me about this instructor. So I started taking classical guitar lessons. He changed my life. Paul Von Diziano, this beautiful human from Cyprus. And so he really helped me connect to my creative self in a much more expansive way. So I went to college, however, because I talked myself out of wanting to pursue art as a career, because that's just what a good kid does. They don't, I didn't even get that external pressure. That's the funniest thing. My parents were just happy that I got good grades, kept my head down, and they knew I had other stuff going on to worry about. <laughs> like They were intuitive enough to know I was not happy. I really... I wasn't bullied severely, but my God, I felt like I was suffocating my K through 12. It was just not an environment where I thrived psychologically. I still did fine. I got into college and everything. I did study initially astrophysics and astronomy because I just loved those big picture questions. I was so inspired by these deep, passionate thoughts. And I wanted to learn more. And I like the idea of understanding the universe in a structured, interesting way, the pattern detecting. So that's where the connection comes in. That didn't work out. I also am a very social creature. I had four jobs while I was on campus. When I got an A plus in my psych classes, I was like, I think this is a sign from the universe, speaking of which, to pivot. And that's what led me to do that research project. And then also just continue on the path of developmental psych, specifically research, not as a clinician. So I did that, graduated earlier than I thought I would, got into a program that brought me to Asia and Japan. I lived there for five years, and that was also a life-changing event. That's probably what really crystallized my identity as East Asian. It really changed how I felt about myself, the space I felt like I was allowed to occupy. Went there, got into education, ed tech training, learned that was actually my talent, <laughs> public speaking, and designing educational experiences and community management. And that's taken me all over. I've had multiple different roles, directing, supervising, educational programming, and just trying to connect people and then in the background, I've always had a band and this podcast that I have, Six Degrees of Cats, which I love, really coalesces all of my what's up here and my quirky, weird personality. I'm embracing it now. I thought I'd get more normal as I got older. No, I got, I've got i gotten weirder and it's okay. <laughs> the best part of getting older. I love it. I love that you've found a way to coalesce all of those things that you're interested in and make the most of your personality. I think your show is the culmination of that. I'm not oh, even a cat person and I love you. your cat show. <laughs> oh my God, that's the quote I want. It's, did y'all realize there's so much to know? Oh, thank you. That, that really made my week. You're the Happy Friday, indeed. <laughs> now, you've worked in mental health, sexual health, gender-based violence prevention. What are some common examples of gender-based violence that we should be aware of? I think for a lot of us who maybe have not been exposed to that, we don't even know what that looks like or might not even register that some things are red flags. Thanks for giving me space to talk about this. In a nutshell, gender-based violence includes any type of violence where you are specifically vulnerable because of your gender presentation, identity, or I think the power and privilege is imbued to you in your society or your community. So when we think about gender-based violence, I like to use the word power-based interpersonal violence to be very specific. Because power-based violence means if you have structural power, if you have physical power, if you have systemic or legal power over somebody else, that makes it nearly impossible to give what we call informed, enthusiastic, present consent. And so the absence of that leads to people feeling powerless, 
harmed, hurt, not there, not engaged. It's very demeaning and and dehumanizing. And so there's statutory aspects like age and other types of things that just really make things very complicated. Kimberly Crenshaw is an amazing researcher, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E with a accent aigu above her E, Crenshaw, and her principles of intersectionality are vital. So the gender-based violence movement is rooted in the anti-alcohol movement, prohibition. And this is the fun part about social justice. It's all coming from a mix of really good and really bad ideas. But basically it was because women back in the day, some of whom did not believe in racial equity, some of whom were pretty not great, were noticing that battered women, which is the word we used at the time, were mostly being battered because of alcohol. And so they created this movement to combat domestic violence through prohibition. Now, that obviously didn't work because those are really not helpful Band-Aid solutions. But what sprung out of that was also in parallel with the various waves of feminism. Now, we've got a more advanced holistic understanding of the causes of violence against intimate partners, meaning anybody past, present, sexual, romantic, or domestic partner. So specific to the Asian community, racism absolutely has impacts in the variations on this gruesome theme that we experience. Masculinity, for example, because Asian men, specifically East Asian men, although I'm speaking a little bit out of lane, it means something different to be macho. There's different reasons driving macho, hyper-masculine, not helpful behaviors that we're all trying to counter. But if we talk to them as if they're having the same reason to be macho and disregard consent and be hypersexual, as we do some buff white cis man, you're not gonna get that message across. And it really doesn't acknowledge the undergirding kind of harm and pain that I believe drives harmful behavior, the damage for people. So that's one thing. The other thing is East Asian women, you and I both share that presentation are targeted in different ways by those who see us because of the history of how we were immigrated and then how pop culture and the media have staged us as exotic and hypersexual in different ways than, say, the perceived hypersexual and exoticness of, say, a Black woman was seen. It's important to know the history and the context of why somebody is targeting somebody and also why they are being targeted. There's nothing we should do to change that. It's just the awareness of that because I've noticed a lot of providers, like I read sex education columns a lot, like advice columns, terrible advice. Whenever somebody writes in with a question about how should I process this person's fetishization of my identity or the way that I'm being perceived or treated or expected to perform in the bedroom. That's a whole other conversation to have, which is like, how do we process sexual preference? with respect to the impacts that society has and how we've come to identify our preferences and our needs and our behaviors and how we present ourselves sexually. So those are all nuances that deserve a lot of space that we don't have time for. (laughs) (laughs) You asked me a really big question. I neglected to add, I'm also on the board of a really amazing app called OK So. It's free. It's on the Apple Store and also Android. And it's a safe, private, text-based place where folks who are young, how would we define that? And also LGBTQ+. Us, can receive evidence-informed, caring, supportive, non-judgmental responses to questions about sexual, mental health, identity, relationships. Although you don't have to identify with those communities to access this. Yeah, I wonder if you could give some examples of what you would consider red flags that you would tell people, if this is happening to you, you should really start questioning. Absolutely. 
If you're in a situation where you and your partner slash partners, be they temporary or long-term, are disregarding your feelings and telling you that they're not valid or not giving you the time to process and talk them out, then that is not a good sign. I'm talking about times that are intimate, certainly. If somebody's like pushing you, hey, come on, don't you love me? You said it was okay last time. Those situations are absolutely red alert. That person is not respecting your body, your spirit, who you are in this space. So that's a big one. And also I think people who don't want the best for you, and that's not to say that they're giving you a free pass on things that they think you could work on, but trust is really important when you're asking somebody to change. So I think that what they'd want to do is if you're saying, hey, I'm struggling with this or I'm confused about this or I'm not sure where this relationship is going or I'm not sure if this is the pace that I want to be at in terms of our relationship and you're not given that space and you're not given that validation, then that's not a conversation. It sounds like one person is going to get their own way and the other person is going to have to like fall into that. I don't know if there's pithy things. I'm a little bit against rules because you get into this situation where people are like labeling and saying, you're a narcissist or you're gaslighting me. And it's important to be able to identify bad behaviors, but it's also important to make sure both people are understanding the language we're using. Yeah. But I think I did describe yeah. gaslighting, toxic narcissism. Like the, the, you have to define what that means for you and the other person before you start using that language. But yeah, somebody who doesn't take your no, someone who is rushing you, Yeah. Yeah. So you've done a lot of work in violence prevention. What does that work entail? And does it change culturally? If you're working, let's say, with an East Asian population, is your training material adapted to that? How does that factor in? My specific avenue is public health education. I don't have a social work degree. I'm not a therapist. I have training as a mental health youth counselor through New York State really awesome program, but it's pretty elementary. I also have training from an international anonymous crisis line, which also helped. And I have a certification as a volunteer crime victims advocate in hospitals, which is a specific kind of 40-hour training. You have to go through various providers offer it. And I used to supervise one of the programs that did that. I do bystander intervention trainings, which is, I think, one of the most popular and one of the better ways we can engage people in preventing harm within the gender-based violence spectra. It's also called upstander. And there's specific kind of things that you can do that are helpful. And so that's what my lane is. So what is that? In bystander training? Oh, there's multiple agencies that have created these curricula. It's based in research that, let um, me just name these people, Alan Berkowitz, There's folks at Skidmore who did it on campuses. So that's the research that comes that is informing and it's based on evidence-informed strategies that you can do as a bystander, as somebody who is not directly receiving or causing the harm to interrupt moments when you notice there might be increasing risk of whatever kind of violence you don't want to see or be around. Yeah. And I'm going to shout out the providers of that curricula. We have Right to Be, formerly known as Hollaback. We have the Center for Violence Prevention, I think they're called. There's multiple organizations, and they're actually based on indigenous and marginalized communities, non-carceral system-oriented organizing to hold their community members accountable without putting them in the system. 
There are specificities in terms of the context in which the violence happens that are addressed by different community-based programs. So you have Black Women's Blueprint speaks to like intimate partner violence survivorship for Black women in the New York area. I'm most familiar there because that's where I practice. Womankind serves South Asian and Asian in East Asian communities here in New York. And then there's like Voces Latinas. These are all organizations based in the community and they should be community-based. Do you have any examples of where you think education is lacking in terms of like sexual health and all of that? Oh my God, I just have a short answer. It's all lacking. There's nothing out there. We are constantly, there's funding being taken away. We don't even have comprehensive sexual education here. It's all like how not to get pregnant, which is not even relevant to like a good population who would never get somebody pregnant because they're not having sex with people who would get pregnant. You know what I mean? <laughs> In ways that would get somebody pregnant. Yeah, that that's my answer to that. <laughs> okay. Any recommendations for resources that you actually do like? The providers I named are really great. Rape and Incest National Network, R-A-I-N-N, is the clearinghouse that's been contracted by multiple providers and dispatches people based on their geolocation. That's a really good clearinghouse, R-A-I-N-N. If you Google it, there's a free hotline that's 24-7. They work with a lot of local agencies to receive help and also resources. Awesome. Yeah, we'll make sure to include that in the show notes. Now, we cannot close out this interview without talking about kitties. Exactly. (laughs) When did your love for cats start? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I don't know when. I'm going to have to explore that. My podcast, I will definitely say ever since I was a little girl, I had a little kitty named Ribbons. I got with six. I had moved to a new town from the suburbs to the area that's like Napoleon Dynamite that I grew up and and he was my little buddy. And it's just been love at first sight. I don't know if it's Dana. I think it's nature because like my parents were not cat people. (laughs) So how'd you come up with the show concept and what do you hope your listeners get out of it? Oh my gosh. I, in a bit of inspiration, I pulled together this proposal for Six Degrees of Cats and submitted it to Spotify SoundUp Accelerator for Women of Color in Podcasting in USA's inaugural pilot version of this accelerator program that's now been going for like several years. That's what pulled it all together. I just, I have a million creative concepts going on in my mind. Books that I wish I could write, poems, songs, everything like that, just how my brain works. And so I pulled that proposal together. It got in. There were 18,000 applicants and I was stunned that they thought this bonkers, weird little podcast was worthy of one of the 10 seats into the accelerator. But it was really wonderful. So that's how that came to be. What was the second part of your question? I'm so sorry. What do you hope that listeners will get out of it? I hope they feel inspired, curious, affirmed, a little joy. They connect to the sense of playfulness that I hope everybody has in their lives. We have a lot of serious podcasts out there that talk about animal welfare, that talk about social justice. And those there's people doing that a lot better than me. What I'd like to do is just stoke people's curiosity, connect to a friendly voice who's non-judgmental and is like, hey, I'm I'm a fellow journey person here in this weird world. We're just so lucky to have these cute animals that somehow (laughs) chose us and are I just don't understand how people don't like cats. They're so cute. They're so cute. I don't understand how you can't find them cute. I lack that. I cannot empathize with people who don't see cats as cute. Anyway. But you have compassion for them, don't you? I have compassion for them. (laughs) And that is the, I hope that you feel compassion. Thank you for helping me answer my question. Compassion as well. Compassion for the fact that we're all just trying to figure out how weird and confusing and scary this world is. We're still naked primates in a cave bumping into each other, stepping on each other's toes, fighting for resources. We just have fancier tools and tech for it. 
<laughs> when we first talked, I remember you said you can make anything related to cats, and you weren't joking. Your podcast has talked about Valentine's Day, motherhood, Vikings, Kosovo. So what have you learned about the relationship between humans and our feline friends as you produced the show? Did you have some new appreciation for cats and humans? Absolutely. I have been unlearning things thanks to the experts I speak to. I will have a set of questions, but if they're telling me something different, I will go and follow them. I unlearned the definition and understanding of domestication, thanks to Dr. Melinda Zeter, who was this leading anthroarchaeologist in episode one. I've learned that I'm not, nor should I be expected to be the perfect pet owner, certainly. I am misreading my cat's signals. That's okay. It's communication that's happening. They're not abused. Don't worry, everybody. I've learned that it's only a matter of perspective that we're smarter or more strategic or more powerful or strong than animals. It's literally how you position yourself in that conversation. To cats, we're idiots. We're total incompetent idiots. To dogs, we're idiots. We can't understand what they're saying, even though they keep barking the same thing over. To frogs, we're, I don't know, we're idiots. You know what I'm saying? Like the species-centered thinking, it's just interesting. Of course, I'm not going to centralize cat welfare when I'm trying to decide how to allocate $5 million when there's billions of people who are suffering but can I integrate that understanding and, and think, okay, this is more sustainable if I integrate the understanding of all these creatures in my communities. That's what I learned. The Kosovo episode, I think that was episode four, was really what I was trying to get across in that episode, which I learned through my experts. Yeah. Yeah, that was a wonderful episode. Oh, thank you. As usual, we'll close the interview with our rapid fire section, <laughs> which are one word or one phrase answers you can explain, but you don't have to. First question, what's an Asian food that you should like but don't? Natto. What's an Asian food that you'll never get tired of? Watermelon candy. Oh, I've never had that. There's this Japanese watermelon candy. I can't remember what it's called, but it's just so freaking good. <laughs> Ugh, I'll have to look it up. Tastes like bonkers. That's yeah. an 80s throwback. What's your favorite rock band that you like to listen to? Oh, just one? Oh, my. Okay, what's the one that you've listened to the most in the last week? How about that? Okay, The Kinks. Who inspires you as a songwriter? There's two primary. Can I name them both? Sure. Jeff Buckley and PJ Harvey. And finally, what's your favorite episode of your podcast so far? They're my children. How can I pick one? <laughs> I'm really proud of the Mother's Day episode about St. Gertrude. That's an episode that I was learning a lot in because I had a lot of fun experimenting with like sound design and setting the scene. You'll notice it when you first start listening to the podcast. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. It was so great chatting with you. Thanks for having me. It was such a pleasure. I really appreciated your questions. I hope you can derive some good one-liners out of those strings. Here are our takeaways for this final episode of season three of the Nuances podcast. Number one, the reasons behind toxic masculinity is different from men with oppressed identities versus men who are part of the majority, and we need to acknowledge that difference if we want to meaningfully address the problem. Number two, consent is not something that you give once and is valid forever. Consent has to be given every single time. Number three, we do our most compelling work when we embrace who we are and all of our quirks. See Amanda's Six Degrees of Cats or Ivy Lee's Fogo Fear of Going Outside, for example. Number four, if you wouldn't ask the same question to a non-adoptee, then don't ask it to an adoptee. 
By the same token, if you wouldn't ask a question to a white dude, example, where are you really from, then don't ask it from a person of color either. Very simple. As with every week, definitions, takeaways, links mentioned, and the full video and transcript are available in the show notes for this episode at nuancesbot.com. My friends, we are now at the end of season three. Thank you so much for listening for the past 15 weeks. It's been an incredible journey since 2022. Your support over the weeks and months and more than a year now has meant a lot to me. There's been a lot of times when I wondered, why am I putting so much time into this? And then I would get a message from one of you listeners who would say, this episode made me feel seen. This episode brought me to tears. This episode made my day better. And then I thought, yeah, you know what? I think I should keep doing this. So thank you for every one of you who has reached out to me either through social media, DMs, emails, text, however you've reached out to me to let me know that this work has been meaningful to you. That has been very meaningful to me and encouraged me to keep going. In the coming weeks and months, while I'm taking a break from publishing new episodes, I may do some episode swaps with other podcasts by the Asian diaspora that I think you might like. So watch out for that. I hope you enjoyed the season. And I also hope that you enjoyed the theme song for the season three, which I also created. It's funny because I created the song and then I didn't realize that you will never get to hear it completely because it's always playing under something else. So maybe today at the end of the episode, I will play it for you. Season four is coming. We will have the same interview format as we've had before, but I'm also working on a mini series. Here's all about that. A few months back, I started seeing videos about different concepts around LGBTQIA plus people. For example, in the indigenous Filipino culture, the concept of gender is more fluid, is what I've been told. But of course, since the Spanish invaded and Catholicism is the main religion, a lot of Filipinos are very much against LGBTQIA+. Things are changing, but there's still a lot of room for progress, as we've seen in Danny Saldo's episode and a few others. I've also seen videos citing plays or operas from China around the year 1600 that featured lead characters that were trans or lesbians. So clearly those must have been at least mainstream back in the day, which is a long time ago. If you look that up on Wikipedia, you will find that there's many places in Asia where it's been documented in plays and poetry, paintings, music. At the same time, when I spoke to a lot of the guests from the LGBTQIA plus community, I noticed that one of the common struggles is that families, relatives often don't understand. Sometimes they think that queerness is a trend that they don't understand, that it's a Western concept, that it's a new modern thing that the young kids who are trying to be cool are doing. So I thought a series like this that explores how queerness has been in our Asian cultures for centuries and therefore it is not a modern Western trend or concept. Maybe that would give a starting point for people to have these conversations with family and friends and relatives relatives in a way that might alleviate the burden of educating about the history 
from you. So I'm excited to do it. I have lined up a number of guests who are studying this academically. I also plan to weave in some modern day references as well. And if I can get funding for this, I would love to make this into a narrative format with sound design and music. And I would like to either commission authentic music from those eras where appropriate or commission artists to create visual representations or some other forms where I get to involve the community and make this project a more collaborative project. So I want to explore a bunch of different countries where I know queerness has been documented in history. Of course, I cannot cover all the countries in Asia, but I know for sure Japan, Iran, Philippines, China, India, Pakistan, so if you know any experts I should be talking to or any books I should be reading, please reach out to me. I am not part of the LGBTQIA plus community, so I am drawing on the expertise of the people I bring in for each episode. I'm leaning on historians, academics, but of course, I also want your input. So if you would like to be part of this mini series if your family has struggled with your queerness, I would love to hear from you. Let me know what concepts they struggle with the most. And let's see if I can get the help of some experts to debunk those myths. You can submit this by email through the website or you can submit a voice memo. The link for that is in the show notes as well. And it's on the website at nuancespod.com support. If the one minute limit is not enough for you, send me a DM. Let's talk and see what we can do. I still haven't quite exactly nailed down the format and how I'm going to weave everything together, but I do want this to be a bit more of a community project rather than only me doing it. Because again, I'm not part of the LGBTQIA plus community and I want to do this as respectfully and mindfully as I can. I know that there is still a lot for me to learn. For example, one of the academics I reached out to pointed out that the term queerness or LGBTQ is a Western term that is not appropriate for pre-modern queerness in Asia. So yeah, I have a lot to learn. Anyway, I hope you're excited for this project as much as I am. If you are, I would highly encourage you to join our Discord and maybe let's continue the conversation there. Send me an email through the website on the about page. I believe there's a contact form there. Once again, I'm your host Azu, and I hope you'll join me very soon for another nuanced conversation. Thanks again for having me, Lazu. That was such a great conversation. For more like that, you can follow Nuances Pod on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook. See you in a couple weeks. And remember, everything is connected. <laughs>